The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to the second edition of Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell. I'm the Portfolio Manager for the Growth and Income Portfolios here at Investmart. And I'm also joined by Alex Hughes, who looks after our Small Cats portfolio. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nat. Going to get straight into a stock that you've got a little bit of history with. It's a company called Afterpay, which has captured the market's imagination. I just thought for interest, I'd have a look at the valuation for this business. So it's around $3 billion Australian dollars. And I compared it to a stalwart of the US retailing market, a company called JCPenney that's been around for decades and compared to its market capitalization, which was $435 million US dollars, so about, let's say, $550 million. So a company that's been around for barely a year or two as now a market cap about six times the size of a company that's been around for decades uh, in America and one of the most well-known names in the country. Uh, it's amazing what this company's done, but first, just take us back to what this company does and maybe a little bit about your background with it, and then we'll talk about the valuation. Sure. Yep. So Afterpay, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of Afterpay, at least, um, or I'm sure many have used it as well, but essentially, it's it's a, a, la- a lay-by business, um, or actually, re- reverse lay-by is probably a better definition. So it allows a consumer to go into a store to to pay for a product with instalments, but instead of actually picking the product up after paying for the, the whole item, they can leave with that product immediately. And they can do so online or in store. Um, so th- this allows consumers to spend money that they don't have immediately, um, and that flows through to the retailer because they often spend more, so the retailers are happy for that. And that encourages or allows the retailer to actually pay a fee to afterpay and that's how Afterpay makes money. And the consumers, if they pay on time, they don't pay anything to, to Afterpay. So it's, it's captured the hearts and minds of Australian and now American consumers, and, and, and it's grown very quickly. And I guess that valuation premium you, you mentioned with um, JCPenney's represents the scalability of this business because... Yeah, I think that's a really important point I was going to ask you. Why is it this company's been able to expand so quickly? It's, it's remarkable. So we had Kim Kardashian tweet about Afterpay, I think it was this week or last week. So you've got consumers, um, and in Kim Kardashian's case, a, a merchant actually promoting Afterpay's business for itself. So it's grown this enormous network without actually spending much on marketing at all. And for retailers, there's almost that sort of fear of missing out. Um, you know, if your competitor uses Afterpay and you don't, you might lose a consumer. So it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling growth path for Afterpay where, where retailers feel like they have to join and we saw that early on with Afterpay where it initially started with just small apparel retailers and that, that expanded, um, they moved across categories and then they got the biggest retailers and, and that's just continued. Now with America they, they've replicated what they've done in Australia in about six months and it took them two years in Australia so it's, it's simply amazing. It's a really easy sell too because my wife works in retail And she said, oh, we just absolutely love Afterpay because people want to use it and the average ticket spend is larger when they use Afterpay rather than paying cash on their credit card. I said, well, of course you love it because not only of those facts, but when someone rings you up and says, do you want to use Afterpay as a potential sales point, 
uh, basically they're offering free money to your customers. So, of course, you're going to offer it to them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there was a, um, a building down the road from our office here that had an enormous sign on the outside of the building um, advertising Afterpay and not their own business, which I thought was remarkable. So they're, they're quite comfortable promoting um, you know, a, th- a third-party financing business to their customers and in the hope that those customers will spend up more and I guess you'll attract some customers that don't have that money to spend today. So that brings us to the risks and the regulators have recently took a look at this sector uh, which is, um, what do they call it, the uh, payday lender market. It's essentially where this company's been thrown into um, with your porn brokers and whatnot. Um, What was the outcome of the regulators because they don't seem to have been particularly harsh on it and what are the risks actually within the afterpay business model? Yeah, so the regulators had a look at, at, at the buy now, pay later sector and it seems that they've, they've followed the New Zealand path where they've said that they will keep an eye on it essentially but they haven't actually been firm in imposing any, any regulatory um, restrictions at this point. Um, that, that may change. They may require Afterpay to fall under the, the credit provisions and that would mean um, Afterpay might need to you know, verify the, the income and credit worthiness and the, the identity of those customers because currently it doesn't do so. Um, if, if that would happen, it would mean, it would essentially add cost to Afterpay's business. They, they might have to use a third-party um, provider um, to verify that person's income and, and things and that would have a cost and that would reduce the value of that first-time customer. I think Afterpay would be somewhat insulated against that because a, a huge portion of their book is actually repeat customers. So they might have to pay to verify that person initially, but then there wouldn't be that an ongoing need for that. Um, so that's that's probably the main regulatory concern, concern there. Um, in some of the case studies that came out, there was, it was quite alarming. You know, there were examples of consumers that had you know, payday loans and credit card debt, and, and also afterpay debt on top. And afterpay seemed to sit at the end of end of the line there in terms of getting paid. So, and a quarter of all of afterpay's revenue comes from late fees. That's right. Yeah. So that helps to offset. Um, um, helps to offset bad debts, essentially. Um, And and that's probably the main point of contention with Afterpay's model because it's new, we haven't seen it evolve through a cycle yet, so we don't know what a recession or an economic downturn is going to do to bad debts and ultimately their returns. And that's probably the main arguing point between the bulls and the bears. And you you see the share price, it's just so volatile. It went up to $20-odd and now it's down around 13 And it's, you know, you you see intraday swings of 5 or 10% Quite often, and that to me that reflects just how how difficult this business is to value, and um, you know some of the unanswered questions that are out there about the business. So, an official call: Are you a bull or a bear? I think officially I'm a fence sitter at this point. I I really admire the scalability, the, the virality of the business. Um, I think now you have to consider that the, the potential of this business to go into Europe, go into Canada, go into Asia. I mean, that's that's probably likely. Um, what that is worth is very difficult and and I've spent a great deal of time thinking about this. Um, we were very early into Afterpay and we made a few hundred percent out of it and then we left a few hundred percent on the table so it's it's been one that's been hurting for me for a while and um, it's been in the back of my mind for a while as well but at this point I, I, I struggle to value it and that's what keeps me away from it. Yeah, I'm officially a bear at the moment but um, the main reason is I think it's underestimated how capital intensive this business is as well. Anytime you're lending money, you need a big balance sheet. And I think 
as the bigger the company gets, the more capital raisings it's going to need uh, to make sure that you can cover any bad debts. I'd really just like to see it go through a cycle first because my fear is if people need to use afterpay services to buy things at this point in the cycle, um, essentially they're a lender of last resort. And I figure if you need afterpay to be buying oak boots or whatnot, or now it's dental, like this is one of the concerns I have is the average spend, like it used to be like a $60 pair of Ugg boots was what I had in my head. Now it's for dental and all sorts of, I think, surgeries or something was coming up. Absolutely, yeah, it's gone across the board. Like these are very expensive things and uh, I worry about how much money the company's going to get back if we have to go through a recession at some point. Exactly. So I'm officially a bear, but who knows, it could double before it, or triple even before we have any sorts of problems. Any thoughts on Zipco, which is is also in that category sort of yeah. business I know well. I saw a presentation. I couldn't understand the business model. Yeah, it has a slightly different model. It's not as simple as Afterpays. Afterpays is very clean and very simple. They don't charge ongoing fees and things like that. And the customer for Afterpay doesn't pay anything if they pay on time. But Zipco is different. There's um, account keeping fees. Their model varies. Um, you know, you can have different payment durations and different payment amounts. Um, and they're the second mover as well, so they're not as widely known. So if I were to look at the space or look at Afterbay, because I think they've got the first moving advantage and they've got far better brand awareness. Um, and I think ZipPay also has higher bad debts. So I wonder whether they're, they're getting um, the, the worst lot of the customers and potentially have a more fragile business. Great. There's a lot of headlines in the paper at the moment about a forthcoming recession in the US and perhaps around the world, perhaps in Australia, a housing-led recession I just wanted to know, from your perspective, running a portfolio, how do you think about recession or macroeconomic type risks and, and how would it Im- a recession impact your portfolio? It's, it's another thing that's been on my mind for a long time. I think given the amount of consumer debt that Australians have, I think um, our economy is very sensitive to shocks. And, and, and I've been thinking about this for a while. I actually came across Steve Keane, which I'm sure some of our listeners will, will know of. And the man who walked to Kosciuszko about five years ago. That's right, yeah. So he called in a, a crash in Australian property and, and that didn't come to pass. Um, but I think he has made a good contribution to the economic, um, economic thinking about how the acceleration of debt influences house prices. And I read that back in 2009 and that sort of really helped me understand what's going on today. So when the majority of a house price is funded by debt... Um, it follows that you need accelerating debt in order to have rising prices. Um, but if you reduce the amount of debt available to an economy, that's going to flow directly to prices. And you know, when the price of a house is set by the marginal buyer, um, if that marginal buyer has less to less to spend on a house through um, less credit, you know, that directly flows into prices. So we've started to see that now. The question is whether that flows into the second order effects, and then we get. Um, an actual slowdown in economic growth, and there's some early signs of that as well. So it is the right time to be thinking about all these things, and it's, it's important to think about how a, a portfolio is impacted. And so how does it inform your stock selection process, and how are you feeling at the moment the way the portfolio is constructed? It, it's actually really difficult, I find, because if we do have a recession, it's going to impact all stocks. But I think you can simplify that by thinking, if, if you think about a stock um, by its PE ratio, there's a price and there's an earnings level there. What I try and focus on is thinking about the earnings and thinking about a business that will have defensive earnings that will hold up well through a downturn. That's probably your best defence because it's very difficult to mitigate the multiple because when stocks get hit, they all get hit. And so there's multiple contraction across the board. But I think if you focus on the defensive types, so we're, we're talking offshore earnings, 
or businesses that derive their earnings from sustainable consumption or things that consumers buy day in, day out, and that doesn't change um, given the conditions, then I think you're going to be in a better place. But it, it's really difficult to, to mitigate these things. There's a quote uh, that actually describes the way I think about it. Is it's, it's always you can uh, prepare, but you can't predict these things. Like I would have said four or five years ago, the stocks, particularly in the US, were extremely expensive, and yet the market's gone way up since then. Uh, but the comment, uh, I can't remember this guy's name, but he was a, a technology investor in the US, very successful. And he said, it doesn't matter what you own going into a bear market, it only matters what you own coming out. And that really describes the strategy that I have, is that right now I think this is a time where you want the absolute best quality businesses you can buy at a decent price. And we don't know how the cycle is going to turn or when it's going to turn, but the mistake that we made at Intelligent Investor back in 2009 is we owned some of the worst or lowest quality businesses and debt securities possible and, and they went broke and it was very painful and I certainly don't need to learn that lesson again. But sometimes you've got to play offence and defence and I think at the moment I feel like I'm playing defence. I'm not trying to stick my neck out, um, swinging too hard at things. I just don't think you're getting rewarded for that in this market. But I think what's underestimated is that when you do go through a downturn, if you've got a portfolio of really high-quality businesses, let's just say for argument's sake they fell across the board, or let's say it's a nasty recession, they fall by 20% or maybe 25%, which would be um, pretty bad by historical standards, there's going to be a lot of other businesses that may not be as high as quality as those, but they're probably going to be down 50 60 or 70%. And what you really, or what I want to try and do in those situations is sell cheap for cheaper. But if you don't have really good quality businesses in the first place that are going to hold up through that period, then all you're owning is really bad quality stuff and that's, that stuff actually probably gets so cheap you don't want to sell it or the market gets illiquid or there's big gaps in the share prices. So that's how I tend to think about it. I think uh, in some ways people think about the recession too much and uh, maybe this is a 10-year bull market in the US talking. Uh, but I think as long as you've got a, a, an approach that's going to take you through it, then you've really got nothing to worry about. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I, I also have a defensive approach at the moment. We've got in our port in the smaller companies portfolio, about half of the revenue of the companies in the portfolio comes from overseas. So that's that's sort of shows our thinking there, trying to um, build a, a stronger earnings base in those portfolios. And if we did see a route, um, that would be the time to potentially get more aggressive and to potentially sell some some cheap stocks and potentially buy some much cheaper ones. So, yeah. I want to move on to a specific stock in your portfolio at the moment called Adacel, which has had a, a lot of bad news announcements recently. Um, and I want you to incorporate it not just in terms of what's going on at Adacel, because it is one of your larger positions, but just how you think about when the news comes out for these companies, the stock price is falling, what's your analytical approach to take you through that? Well, I guess it starts with, oh, oh shit, there's an announcement. I've got to <laughs> digest this and, and unpack it and understand it. Um, so that's probably the first thing that, that I do, and I'm sure everyone does as well. So what's actually happened and, and what does it mean? And it's easy to, to be emotional about that, so it's, it's best to not get caught up in that and just, just focus on the facts, try and figure out what the implications are for value. So that's, that's probably the first point. I, I know some other investors out there that, tend to sell on the, on the first sign of bad news. You know, they say, if there's one downgrade, I'm out. I don't want to be involved with the stock anymore. And be like the cockroaches in the kitchen, there's always more than one. Yeah, yeah, I guess in Adisal's case, this is not the first. So this is, um, there's been a few cockroaches there. But I guess with that approach, um, 
you know, just, just selling for the, the sake of having a, a clean slate. I, I can appreciate the logic of that, but then there's also the, the value argument, I think, where, I mean, in this, um, in Adisal's case, the share price fell considerably and it could potentially be an issue that's not as damaging to value. Um, so there, in this case, or in, in other cases as well, you know, if you just sell immediately and, and just completely get out, you might be doing so and selling a company, you know, at, at half of its value or, you know, three quarters of the value of the company. So I'm mindful of that as well. I don't, I don't want to rush for the exits just for the, just for the sake of not having to think about the problem anymore. So, yeah, so I want to understand it. I want to think about it in terms of value um, and, and, then, and then use that as my guide for the ultimate decision there. So, so I think part of it is, one, you've got to get the emotions out of it. And there's a nice quote that I thought Kerr Nielsen gave at one of our talks uh, many years ago. And he said, stocks don't, owe you, owe, sorry, stocks don't owe you anything. So when a stock goes bad, you've really got to separate your own feelings about the stock price going down and, and potentially losing some money. It's not like the stock knows that you own it. It doesn't care about you. Uh, it's not part of your family. You've really got to separate that. Um, it may be random or there may be good cause for it, but you've got to separate the emotion to make uh, an intelligent and, and rational uh, decision about it. And there's another guy called Richard Zeno who was actually quite well-known up to the GFC, but has had a very hard period since, so you don't hear a lot from him. But he talked about how when your stock's down 50%, that decision that you make at that time is the most important decision that you make as a fund manager whether it's the, the get out or to hold on or to whether buy, to buy more, that really dictates your returns over time. So with Adacel, uh, how did you look at the facts and what gave you the confidence to, to buy some more? I guess I started with the original thesis. So Adacel has a strong position in two markets that are related to air travel software. And it has this large recurring revenue base that's related to those two business divisions. And a big part of that business is based on the relationship it has with these important US groups, such as the FAA um, and a few military customers and so on. Um, so the, this, the, the issue which, re, which resulted in the downgrade related to the FAA, and, and Natasau has a number of contracts with the FAA um, across the two divisions. So the first thing I wanted to identify was whether this is a systematic issue or whether it's related to that, that first contract. Um, if it's a systematic issue, it means thesis is broken, this business is in for tough times, we need to get out. But it seemed to me that this issue related to a specific contract in, in one of the divisions, and that largely stemmed from a legal dispute with a competitor. Um, so to me, it didn't seem like there's a systemic issue. Um, if you look at the other big contract with the FAA, which is a very important contract, this is in the other division of Adesel, um, that has increased. They've had a, a, a multi-decade-long relationship there, and that was recently extended and increased in size in the last year. So it shows that the FAA is very happy in that part, um, and it shows to me that there's not a systemic issue. Um, so that was probably the first part there that I that I looked into. Um, then tried to figure out what's the business worth, and there's a number of factors there because. Um, you can write that revenue off from this this contract which has the dispute and then value the business on that basis. But there's also a chance that they'll actually um, re-win that work um, because in Adesel's opinion, their competitor has infringed on their IP rights and they think they have a very strong legal case um, to to retain that contract and to, to put a big blow into their competitor. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's a chance that 
in both scenarios, Adisal is looking very, very cheap. And there was a couple of good signs too. There was some insider buying, and because the company has such a good balance sheet, it's actually been buying back shares, which is pretty rare to see a share price fall this much and then see the board or management approving these uh, share buybacks. Yeah, it was encouraging to see the director buying, but Adisal has actually been buying shares before that, and they were doing so for, well, the buyback has been in place for over a year, and I know a lot of investors have criticised that as being a sign of bad capital management, and and I think there is an argument for that, but I think it also shows to me that this dispute caught Adisal's board off guard as well. Um, they thought the business was cheap um, pre the announcement, and they were buying back shares on that basis. You, obviously, if, if you could see this dispute coming and understand the implications of it, you wouldn't be buying back shares, and, and I don't think they're that stupid. The, the chairman... Um, it's Peter Landos, who's a representative of Thorny Investments. So these are smart guys. They're not, they're not fools. They understand the implications of, of these things. So I think it just shows that this dispute caught them all off guard and, um, and, and they, they were intending to do the right thing with the company's capital. So other investors give them a black mark and say they don't know what to do, but I think um, it just shows that there's a lot of grey in the world. It's not black and white, and, and this is a case that needs to be thought about dynamically, essentially. I think there's also one last practical point of running a professional fund probably more so than as an individual, and that is it's very hard with some of these very small illiquid companies to get the size of position you need to move the needle in the portfolio. Mm. But one time when you do tend to get that liquidity is when there's really bad news and you just get a big rush of people selling out. Yeah. So it's nice to think that, hey, I'll just wait for the selling to settle down and then I'll carefully bite the bottom as though you can always pick the bottom. Yeah. But that's actually when the liquidity is there and it's often if you're running a large fund, you've got to take advantage of that liquidity while it's there if you believe in that business. That's exactly right. And if you look at the other investors that desert companies that have bad news, there is a counter-argument to that, that when a company has problems like this that we don't think are permanent, it can be a great opportunity to add value over time. And you know, if you're able to buy some shares really cheaply when, when no one likes the company, and, and it seems like at the moment, we were talking about this off-air, Nath, with social media bombarding us with news and just a constant flow of everything going on all at once and it seems to be sort of heightening emotions that, to me, this isn't a fully formed view, but it seems like people are, that that emotion is flowing into stock markets more and you're seeing more volatility, especially when a company has bad news. Now, that might be that if you're able to you know, identify a good company that's being hit with short-term news, there might be a, a greater chance to, to make a really good return out of that. So, I think that's a great point, and I think we'll use that as a topic in our final podcast for the year next week and explore that a bit further and talk about some of the advantages of being in the Twitter sphere, uh, which is rampant with uh, financial people. So uh, th- uh, we're going to look at a couple of questions from Christian. Thanks, Christian, for sending them in. I'll take the first one. The first, have we got any thoughts on overseas stocks, possibly UK ones? So I've had a bit of experience. It hasn't been a great experience over the last three or four years. In my former role, I was following the US banking sector. The US banking, uh, sorry, the UK banking sector, which is very similar to Australia's banking sector. You've got four or five really big players. They fund themselves the same way. They're 70 or 80% deposit funded, and then they have to borrow the other 20% of their capital capital from uh, the debt markets. So very similar to Australia. They also pay very big dividends, and interestingly enough, Lloyd's, I haven't actually seen a bank with a lower cost base than what Lloyd's has got. And so I had Lloyd's in our portfolio, and Lloyd's was a company that 
has really been a punching bag for the UK regulators along with a number of other banks in the UK. So far, it's taken a 19.2 billion pounds in provisions uh, since the GFC for insurance that it provided for home buyers so they could afford to pay back their loans under difficult financial circumstances that was erroneously sold. So this was an issue that was I thought would have been done and dusted one or two years ago and it's still going and there's actually an end to this. Uh, you can not put any more claims in after August 2019. So as we've seen with Clydesdale, uh, which is a bank, a UK bank but listed in Australia, the NAB spin-off, we've seen a lot, a lot of last PPI uh, provisions which uh, are going to end in the next 12 months. Now, that's been one problem, uh, but the other one has just been interest rates have been so low in the UK, which has crimped profit margins. But what you do have is, if I just use Lloyd's as an example, it's a £40 billion bank. That's the current market capitalisation. It should be able to earn at least £6 billion uh, pounds under and through a normal cycle. So this is, uh, this is arguably or what it is. One of the best banks in the world has the number one position trading at six or seven times earnings paying uh, around about a 5.5% dividend yield that once it's finally does, stops taking these PPI provisions should be able to pay out something more like a 7.5% dividend yield. Now, there's no franking credits, although that may worry people less in the near future. But I think that's just one example of some value that's there, but it's just been people have been so uh, fed up with nothing happening uh, that they've just given up on the stock. So I think uh, that's one. And the other one is also involved in the home loan or the home uh, building market, which is Foxton's. And if you want to look up a, a quick explanation for the investment case of this stock, uh, I think Platinum Asset Management wrote it up last quarter and Caledonia, another Australian fund, also have an interest in it. This is a very small company. Uh, it's a real estate agent. It's got net cash or it's got cash on the balance sheet, no debt. Uh, it's been hammered. Uh, it, this was a four-pound stock. Uh, in 2014, and today it's 48 pence. Uh, so it just shows you how far it's fallen. Now, there are home, uh, the home lending market has slowed extremely quickly in the UK, and I don't know whether this Brexit is going to be, get messier from here, uh, but it's one that's trading on very low multiple of earnings, and if the market gets back to selling the same number of homes on average uh, over the next two or three years, and that's potentially a double or more for a business that has no debt. So there's a couple of UK stocks um, where I've got some basic knowledge. It's not uh, personal advice. Please do your own homework. Uh, and the other question was, do we have any view of locally listed company Molus? Yeah, it's not a stock that I know very well. I just had a quick look before the podcast. So um, just to provide that caveat. But um, there are some attributes that I think are interesting. 40% of the company is owned by the staff and the board and management. So we always like to see that. Um, this business makes its money from asset management and also corporate advice. Um, for me, it's not the right time to be looking at this business at this price level. It's on about 20 times earnings. But it's a, it's a business that I would get more interested in after a big market route when you thought there might be some cyclical recovery in, say, asset values or corporate activity. Um, so, so, yeah, I think f for now there's not much interest from me, but um, it's one that I'd, I'd look at at a, at a different point in the cycle. Okay, so one for the watch list. That's right, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for joining me, Alex. Uh, that's the end of our podcast today. Uh, please listen for the email address if you'd like to send us questions for us to answer next week. And thanks very much for listening. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, 
head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.